0: Hi folks, your old pal Will here. Coming up soon, Luke and I are going to be doing another one of our beloved Mailbag episodes where we take questions from you, the listener. If you have burning questions for me or Luke about politics, culture, love and sex, the meaning of life, anything that your heart desires an answer to, send it to Michael and Podcast at gmail.com by Sunday, September 6th. We'll answer the questions on a future episode, and it will be a Patreon episode. So uh, you can ask a question, but to get the answer, you have to pay. And now, folks, on with the show. Here we are. Back to the movies. I loved it. I loved it. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with
1: Luke Savage. Hey, everyone.
0: Every dark cloud has a silver lining. Living in a pandemic is a hard situation to be in, but it has produced some great art. And the art I'm talking about is a viral video, a, a tweet, actually, a tweet video that went around this week, which is maybe the funniest thing I've ever seen. And it was from Tom Cruise's Twitter account. And it was a video that he posted of him going to see the movie Tenet, which has been released theatrically now in in much of the world, most of the world. I think the video showed him going to see it in London. And it's hard to put your finger quite on why this video is so funny. You saw it, right?
1: Yeah, it's got this uncanny, kind of slightly Tim and Eric editing to it, this like staccato editing we just cuts very quickly from one thing to the next. And Cruz just has this very bizarre, like one dimensional intensity where he's trying to celebrate the film, but he he can't, he can't find anything to say about it except, you know, these very Trumpian flourishes where it's like, yeah, it's big. It's great. Theaters love them.
0: Yeah. You see him <laughs> driving in his limo to the movie theater and then he gets out and he's wearing a mask. And he says, ah, back to the movies. and you know you see him on the way out and he's like loved it uh and it's it's so funny because going to the movies is one of the most ordinary and banal of human activities and he can't quite sell it he can't sell the idea that this is a thing that he would he would normally do because there's nothing textured or specific about his love for movies you see him there and he's just like yeah, I love movies, love love big screens, you know, love... People ask me my favorite movie, and, and like, all of them, you know?
1: <laughs> what was that thing? It was it Christian Bale who said that he based his performance in uh, American Psycho on Tom Cruise because, Mm. you know, he said something to the effect of there's nothing behind the eyes, you know?
0: He's such an enigma, isn't he? He's like this hyper real version. It's why he's such a great movie star is because like projected onto a 40 foot screen, you want somebody who's that kind of hyper real version of a human (laughs) being. But then when you see him try to perform actual mundane tasks, like imagine him cooking eggs in the morning.
1: He's just the same Tom Cruise character. He
0: would cook eggs more <laughs> intensely than anyone has ever cooked them before. I love eggs. Love over easy. You know, I like to put some <laughs> toast on the side of the plate. But I bring this up partly because Tenet has been released theatrically in in some places after months of buildup. This is the movie that our exhibitors were banking on bringing back movie going I'm not sure if that's actually happening. It's playing here in Toronto. What's funny is there's so little discourse around this movie that's actually focused on the movie itself. People are talking about it a lot, but they're only talking about what are the ethics of releasing a movie that might be popular under these circumstances. You know, even if theaters are 30% capacity... So, I mean, I don't know, I'm maybe a little agnostic, leaning on negative towards going to see a movie like this in a the theater. It doesn't seem very fun. And also, I know people who could die if they caught the coronavirus. But I realized that actually since the start of the pandemic, you know, there have been a lot of movies that have been released straight to online. And it feels to me like there are very few movies that have actually created a discourse I mean, the only one I can think of actually is the Zack Snyder Justice League uh, Snyder cut, which hasn't even come out yet. Uh, all the other ones just sort of fall into this streaming void. For those of us who love movies, you know, and love going to see movies, the release of Tenet is a melancholy affair because it, it, has, some of, it has some of the texture of a big release of yore in that there's a discourse around it and, and people are talking about it and people are anticipating and some people kind of want to see this movie, which is something I haven't felt in six months. And yet so much of the discourse is about whether it's good or safe to even go see it. So it's like a bizarro world version of a normal movie release.
1: Well, I suppose it's defensible given the circumstances, but it seems yet another case of, you know, what is increasingly par for the course with any, you know, major cultural event, you know, particularly films these days, which is Uh, Often the content now matters less than whatever meta debate arises around it or can be sort of artificially constructed. This time, it's probably less of an artificial debate. But films, I feel, are less and less taken on their own terms and more as these kind of grand cultural touchstones that we're supposed to kind of endlessly debate. And of course, there's now an entire infrastructure of, you know, clickbait publications and things like that, which is both a consequence of this and a structure that creates and enables it.
0: It's interesting, when movies played theatrically and had normal event-style buildups. it seems like the conditions were there to create a discourse cycle, because there were so many ways they could be at the center of your field of vision— And, you know, if we're not talking about these cultural artifacts as artworks, if we're talking about them as cultural phenomena, it seems like all of this stuff being thrown into this big soup of of streaming doesn't create the conditions under which these discourse cycles can emerge although I guess Tiger King did launch a discourse cycle. Um, I, I'm not I'm not sure why that was exactly, but it did.
1: I mean, it, it launched a discourse cycle in as much as lots of people watched it and kind of talked about it, you know, at the, the, the Zoom water cooler or, or whatever, but I don't think I read anything. I, there was not a single interesting thing written about it that I could see. Maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, I thought naturally as soon as I saw it, uh, oh, well, this would be a kind of a fun thing to write about. I wonder if I could think up a really zany Jacobin article on this. Have you uh, have
0: you considered that perhaps Carol Baskin is Hillary and Joe Exotic (laughs) is Donald Trump?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose we should get to the uh, the meatier uh, political matters of the day. We have an absolutely perfect film, which was uh, suggested by Will. It's Rob Reiner's 2016 LBJ film starring Woody Harrelson. Before we get to that, uh, I want to talk about some developments in Canadian politics and also just mention, since I think this is the third episode that's appeared on the Jacobin feed, if you're finding us through there, you can find the whole back archive on SoundCloud, on Spotify, a podcast app near you. Uh, We're also on Patreon, so if you like the show and want more of it, there's more content that can be found there
0: that's patreon.com michael and us
1: that's right and uh, the Al Gore tier which is currently the only existing tier uh, is uh, is five dollars a month there is as of yet no uh, John Kasich or super delegate tier although those may be forthcoming Dragon! Yeah, yeah, he's good. But so the Conservative Party of Canada—I uh, don't even know—I don't know how to begin this and make it sound exciting. Yeah, hey Kevin, uh,
0: you hear about the Conservative Party of Canada? <laughs>
1: Apparently. <laughs>
0: They elected a new leader (laughs) this week.
1: I should have left. You know, Will is our designated segue guy. And the reason he's so suited for that role is because he is absolutely shameless in uttering the hackiest of segues uh, on the fly without discussing them with me first and then saying them with a straight face. So I don't know if you got one for us today.
0: The Conservative Party held its leadership election this week. And as is often the case with conservative leadership elections, both here and abroad, There was an establishment-backed candidate, somebody with impeccable establishment credentials. That would be the Honorable Peter McKay, who served under Stephen Harper. However, he was beaten by the candidate who appealed to the social conservative base. That would be one Aaron O'Toole, who is the MP for Durham, I believe, This was considered something of an upset, although I'm not I'm not sure why it was considered an upset. This happens every single time a right wing party elects their leader.
1: So I I don't know how much we've talked about the Conservative Party of Canada. I think this serves as a good introduction or good moment to introduce people to the the strange political formation that is the Conservative Party of Canada. I largely agree with uh, Will's recapitulation of the race. Although I do think, as with a lot of Republican primaries that have, you know, a similar dynamic, really, this was two establishment figures facing off against each other. Both of these guys had fathers who were prominent in politics, conservative MPs, and they're both Bay Street lawyers. So it's really a question of, whose strategic emphasis on what was going to put them over the top. So Peter McKay was kind of the progressive in the race. He was briefly the leader of the now-deceased Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, which was throughout the 20th century one of the two uh, biggest political parties in Canada. It was largely superseded in the 1990s uh, by new right-wing formations, first the Reform Party and then the Canadian Alliance, McKay ran uh, for the leadership of the PC party on a pledge never to merge with the Canadian Alliance, uh, broke the promise within a few months, and then was a cabinet minister in the Harper government. Uh, He's the kind of politician, you know, talked about very breathlessly in the press, a pretty typical political cipher, very uninteresting. Much the same can be said about Aaron O'Toole. It's true he did win a basic problem faced by uh, elites in the Conservative Party. And I think one of the biggest differences between our Conservative Party and uh, the right in the United States is that here, you know, the liberals really are the dominant faction culturally and politically. And as such, uh, the Conservative Party is very afraid of its own base and, you know, you might say the Republican Party is afraid of its own base, but you would mean something different. The Republican Party is afraid of its own base, so it runs towards them. The conservative party, typically speaking, has to run away from its base. The kryptonite that's deployed against the conservatives in you know most elections and certainly every election that they lose is that they represent a fringe, that there are parties stuffed with anti-abortion zealots, social conservatives, and all kinds of other right-wing interest groups. Uh, and that's very much true of the conservative rank and file. I spent years in my last job at Press Progress reporting heavily on the conservative party. It always struck me that the disconnect between the kinds of things conservative politicians are mostly willing to do and what the base wants them to do is pretty vast. The one moment where the base historically has any say is in a leadership election, because the only people voting in these things tend to be dyed-in-the-wool conservatives— There were four candidates in the race. There's two we haven't mentioned. There was Leslyn Lewis, who is a hardcore social conservative with almost uh, no political experience. She was a failed CPC candidate in, I believe, the 2019 federal election, possibly the the 2015 one. I can't remember which. From what I know about her, she's a kind of a libertarian lawyer. She defended a concert venue from, I don't know... (laughs) red menace of regulatory overreach or something like that Uh, and then there's this guy derek sloan he's actually a member of the conservative caucus he represented the the true lunatic fringe he got about 14 percent in the first round multiple rounds of voting obviously and uh and was eliminated condolences to my co-host on uh his brother's loss in the uh in the election (laughs) Uh, my
0: father actually
1: in any case, uh, the dynamic here is pretty typical of a lot of conservative leadership races, both nationally and uh, in various provinces. Basically, you know, the evangelicals and the social conservatives, who are you know a small but very well organized constituency. You know, they successfully uh, boosted Leslie Lewis into an unbelievably strong position for somebody with no political experience. She got over 20 percent on the first ballot. On the second ballot, she got 30 percent. And, you know, most of her supporters, it seemed, went to Aaron O'Toole. His gambit was running as a died in the wool, you know, true blue conservative. I think that was the phrase he used. And that's how he was able to beat McKay, who didn't increase very much from the first round to the second round. Why is any of this interesting? Well, it's not, it's not particularly. Both of these guys, as I said, O'Toole and McKay, pretty much cypher candidates. If the Conservative Party is able to mount a competitive challenge in the next federal election, it will largely be because the Liberals have screwed up so badly. And in spite of the structural weaknesses in the Conservative Party, Canadian federal politics is heavily regional. Because there are huge parts of the country that are basically not competitive at all. Most of Alberta, for example, rural Alberta especially, many of the seats in rural Ontario are are basically non-competitive. Similarly, there are seats spread throughout the country that more often than not go liberal. Typically, the liberals and the conservatives compete over the suburbs of Toronto, which is a very vote-rich region. And that suburban orientation usually serves to keep Canadian politics, at the federal level anyway, as boring as they possibly can be. A lot of the big policies uh, rolled out by the Liberals and the Tories each election being, you know, kind of competing tax credits, uh, micro-targeted to different constituencies. Things like a tax rebate for your kid's hockey equipment, you know, other kinds of dumb suburban identity politics. When uh, Doug Ford was running to be premier of Ontario, his whole big thing was the, uh, the buck of beer. Do you remember that, Will? Oh, yes, I do. I don't think we ever got buck beer because I think that it's very difficult to actually manufacture beer and then sell it at that rate. But uh, certainly won Doug uh, some seats in the GTA.
0: Stephen Harper was prime minister for almost 10 years before he was defeated in 2015 by Justin Trudeau. And he came from, I guess, the right wing of the Conservative Party. He was formerly of the Reform Party and then the Canadian Alliance. Um, But despite that, he was often remarked upon for his ability to keep his party in line. He was very effective at disciplining the MPs who were vocally pro-life or anti-choice and he seemed to quite skillfully or successfully run an incrementalist strategy for the decade of his tenure, which was was quite effective over the course of 10 years. Why do you think he was able to do that? And and has his absence undone any of that sense of discipline?
1: Yeah, I mean, very, very much so. Uh, You know, the conservatives, when they're in government, famously, you know, they entered government in 2006 with a minority. And very quickly, there were a series of gaffes and blunders. And they implemented kind of a progressively harsher regime of message discipline to the point where political management essentially took over the government. I don't want to give the impression that the Harper government wasn't very destructive and wasn't, you know, a right-wing government, but a big part of the story is boys in short pants, uh, spin doctors, political consultants, and a kind of royal court around the prime minister's office running everything in a completely opaque and unaccountable, and often it seemed very directionless sort of way. That is really one of the big stories of, of the Harper government. Harper was able to to do all this, uh, both take control of the party and kind of masterfully triangulate, giving social conservatives in particular just enough that they wouldn't really revolt while also not alienating too many other people. He was able to do that, I think, you know, largely because he was someone who, was, as Will said, came from the right of the conservative party. He was a social conservative himself. You know, in the 90s, he was a major player in the conservative movement and a a really true conservative ideologue. And that gave him a lot of latitude. I think since he's stepped down, two things have happened. Harper's been free to be the ideologue that he perhaps always was, you know, to be uh, openly friendly with Victor Orban and be openly right wing and sinister again. And the conservative party itself has really struggled to find coherence. In the last uh, leadership election in 2017, the final two candidates were Maxime Bernier and Andrew Scheer. Maxime Bernier, very much the preference uh, led on all of the ballots right up until the last one, very much the preference of the party's base. A guy who's since started a a far right fringe party, the people, the so-called People's Party of Canada, which uh, performed very badly in the last election, didn't win a single seat. Bernier lost his seat in Quebec. Bernier has all kinds of crazy ideas. He, uh, at one point, something that my old outfit, Press Progress, reported on, talked about taking Canada back to the gold standard. He had lots of ideas that are kind of the sort of things you'd get from like a, an 18-year-old campus conservative who's thumbed through a few pages of Von Mises for the first time or something. Not a very intelligent or savvy politician, but somebody who mirrored the preferences, I think, of much of the conservative base. Andrew Scheer, who won, was the compromise candidate. He's also a social conservative, but that was very much muted for a long time because he was uh, Speaker of the House of Commons for much of his career as an MP. So people, I don't think, actually realized that he was very right-wing. At least uh, most of the public didn't. And he was essentially just a less skillful Stephen Harper, uh, a guy kind of pitching himself to suburban voters, very much uh, emanating the typical conservative message about, you know, how uh, we're overtaxed and we need to bring back prosperity, that kind of thing. Really bungled the 2019 federal election, given the uh, pretty major Justin Trudeau scandal that uh, that happened, uh, you know, about halfway through. Anyway, uh, the other night, as uh, the conservative party delayed releasing its results because their machines they were using to count the ballots were, were chewing them up, a nation waited with bated breath to find out which Bay Street lawyer whose dad was in politics was going to take over the Conservative Party. Uh, turns out it was this guy, Aaron O'Toole. And uh, to our American listeners, I know you're hearing about him for the first time. Uh, I suspect that applies to much of Canada, too.
2: Convention fever grips Los Angeles. The only major threat to Kennedy's hopes is Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson. Delegates to meet with Kennedy right now. Jack or Bob? Teddy. crisis places place is in best. In a surprising upset, Senator John Kennedy has won the West... What? Hi, Jack. You mind if I ask you a question, Lyndon? You of your damn mind, Jack. All the liberals hate it. We need Southerners. There's just no power in the Vice Presidency. Power is where power goes. Guessing you Kennedys don't do a lot of deer huh? John Kennedy has been elected President of the United States. I need to show a strong record on civil rights from the start. Maybe they might listen to us. I don't know who's on our side. What makes you think he's on our side? Well, those Kennedys must really hate you. <laughs> those Harvard boys not gonna tell us how to run the state of Georgia. You're gonna lose the support of the people who've always had your back. This train is leaving the station. You can hop on it with me and try to slow the damn thing down. If I'm gonna make a run in 68, I'm gonna need people to like me. Shut the door.
1: So this week we watched, uh, as I mentioned, Rob Reiner's 2016 film LBJ, starring a heavily made up Woody Harrelson as the titular character. Uh, Before we get into the movie, it's worth clearing the ground a bit about the film's context and the political environment that shaped it. I don't mean that of 1960 or 1964, but rather the second term of the Obama presidency when the film was made. That I think, not the 1960s, is its spiritual location, if not its actual setting. A 2017 New York Times review of the film by Manhola Dargis, which praised Harrelson's performance, put it quite critically, in contrast to other efforts of the 2010s, because of its poor, or rather mostly non-existent, portrayal of non-white and male characters. That's perhaps a fair criticism, but make no mistake, this is, like Selma and other quintessential Hollywood projects of the time, a film of, and in some ways even about, the Obama era through and through. Though its actual subject is the late political career of Lyndon Johnson and the legislative wheeling and dealing behind the Civil Rights Act, its politics are peak liberalism 2008 to 2016, and in some ways 2020 as well. Though about one of the most significant progressive victories in American history, its subtext is a cautionary warning about the excesses of political idealism and the necessity of patience in the face of injustice. Social change, in Reiner's conservative rendering of real politic, happens as a consequence of gradual shifts within an equilibrium, as a largely organic development brought about by the interaction of opposed forces and temperaments, Kennedy and Johnson, or maybe Obama and Biden, more on that later, idealist and pragmatist, thought and action, north and south, Harvard and Dixie, liberal and conservative, partisan orator, and bipartisan dealmaker. You might call it dialectical liberalism. And it's certainly a portrait of American politics in the 1960s that maps cleanly onto the official Time magazine version. In keeping with what James Reston, as quoted in Robert as yet unfinished biographical series about LBJ, said, President Kennedy's eloquence was designed to make men think. President Johnson's hammer blows are designed to make men act. While certainly not unique to liberal films of the 2010s, Reiner's LBJ is predictably a film that treats politics as a largely elite affair. One line of argument which is often offered in defense of this style is that a film like LBJ is merely telling one part of a much larger story. A second insists this style is necessary for dramatic purposes. Could you tell a story with similarly dramatic stakes, twists, and turns if it were about unknown black radicals and trade unionists agitating for civil rights two decades earlier? Probably not if your name is Rob Reiner, but that's beside the point. I would argue that the style embodied by a film like LBJ and so many other films like it has less to do with good drama than it does with ideology. For a filmmaker like Reiner and for the tendency of boomer liberalism he represents, political change really is something brought about first and foremost through elite negotiation. This is not only a poor foundation for good political cinema, but a structural feature of how mainstream Hollywood likes to portray the past, and it does history, whatever we ultimately think that is, a tremendous disservice. To quote a 2015 essay by Rob Hunter, During the Great Depression, American socialists did what few other activists would, undertaking the slow and unglamorous work of organizing thousands of members into a movement capable of threatening racist institutions from below. The pre-war alliance of black radicals, labor organizers, and socialist cadres laid the foundation for the mass movements that powered the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. This radical engine is omitted from conventional portrayals of the civil rights movement. Its legislative victories weren't magnanimously handed down from upon high. School desegregation, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and Title VIII of the Civil Rights Act of 1968, the Fair Housing Act, emerged from elite-dominated institutions, but they were the results of intense popular pressure. Um, So I just wanted to get that all out of the way before we discussed uh, the nuts and bolts of the film. It is truly boomer porn at its finest and most crystalline. When Will suggested it, it sounded like it was ripe for the Michael and us treatment, but it uh, it very much exceeded uh, my expectations.
0: Yeah, I pitched it to you as kind of like the centrist manifesto. And, you know, watching it for the second time today, uh, I went to see it ironically, theatrically. Well,
1: watched it. Will watched it twice today because he <laughs> likes it so much.
0: But I don't think I've ever seen a movie that so feels like the product of a Biden primary voter. Was there a single black person in this movie?
1: Yeah, well there, of course there's the one who is I guess uh, LBJ's servant, right? Oh, right, right. Uh, yes, of course. With, with, who he who he kind of evolves on throughout the mo- throughout the movie as the diaphanous forces of history gradually make him less racist. Yeah, later
0: on he has this show-stopping monologue where he says, "Why do you know that my assistant can barely travel in the South?" and you know, that's the moment when he finally shows his hand because most of this movie is him navigating two worlds. LBJ is presented as this perfect broker between, on the one hand, uh, the, I guess, far left of the Democratic Party, which is represented by the Kennedy brothers,
1: (laughs) not the far left of the Democratic Party, but that is that is how the film presents it, certainly, uh,
0: as well as a progressive senator, Ralph Yarbrough, played by Bill Pullman, and the right of the Democratic Party, the Southern segregationists embodied by Richard Jenkins as Senator Richard Russell. He's able to play both sides of the aisle and make them both think that he's on their side. And for most of the movie, he regards civil rights as simply like his competitive advantage, what he can do with his career. And, and characters spend most of the movie asking, what are his commitments? What are his actual beliefs? I kept wondering, of all the stories you can tell about the civil rights movement, why tell the story of the redemption of, of this politician?
1: Well, you know, LBJ's trajectory is pretty interesting because he was, in a very unlikely way, a harbinger of what ended up being the sort of peak of New Deal liberalism, you know, domestically. Uh, I don't think the story is is told in a very interesting way here. We should say right off the bat, our pal Woody Harrelson... I think does do a, a pretty admirable job here with uh, the limited material. He's Also
0: the horrible makeup that he has to wear for the whole movie, which he looks like a melting Madame <laughs> Tussaud statue.
1: So, you know, the film opens with LBJ. He's playing second fiddle to JFK. He's not very happy about it. But we learned very quickly that, you know, he's a bit of a deal maker. He may not be beloved by the people, but he's he's effective in the halls of Congress. So those are kind of two character points. I guess the third character point the film gives us is that, you know, he's really a man from another era. He says things like, Nominations aren't one on the campaign trail. They're one on the convention floor. You know, so he's a guy who is somewhat behind on, you know, where politics is headed. And early in the film, we see him watching with horror as as Kennedy is on TV and saying, I've never seen a politician look that good on TV. I suppose the the final character point is that, uh, you know, he's pretty potty mouthed. So there's what I think is a very awkwardly shoehorned in rendering of uh, the real phone call LBJ made from the White House when he rather crassly ordered a, a new pair of pants the film uh lets us know uh pretty heavy-handedly that you know he's the kind of guy who uh you know he has a potty mouth he uh he talks congressional business uh while taking a dump with the door open you know he fans the air afterwards He's kind of portrayed as the Diamond Joe uh, onion character, wouldn't you say?
0: Part of the appeal of LBJ for a filmmaker like Reiner, and also a public figure like Reiner, because Reiner is a prolific Twitter presence.
1: He's a bit of a pundit, you might say.
0: LBJ, like Joe Biden, comes across as a flawed guy with no particular ideological commitments, you know, whose career... I mean, I, I guess we don't hear a whole lot about LBJ's career, but he's not depicted as having historically been a supporter of civil rights. And I don't know, for somebody like Reiner or at least the constituency of voter that he represents, that seems to be a selling point. This idea that you can be a guy who has been terrible for most of your life, but can finally make the Hail Mary pass in the last stretch of the game and redeem yourself.
1: A scene that's really crucial to you know the politics of this movie is the scene where Kennedy is set up some new committee, some new committee concerned with employment. LBJ, you know, the yokel, is the only one who shows up. All the Havid libs have sent their undersecretaries. They can't be bothered. They don't take it that seriously, even though they have all these demands, these big civil rights demands they want to push through the committee. This scene very much portrays, you know, like the movie, the liberals who are committed to civil rights, they're kind of as much a problem as the Southern Dixiecrats who are racist and are against civil rights. The film is obviously pro the passage of, of civil rights. But it has to give you this particular story about how there was only one way to get there. And the only way to get there was through patience and balance. So it's not that Reiner thinks that Kennedy, who's portrayed as as being very idealistic about civil rights, is the problem. It's that for a guy like him, for a, a boomer liberal, politics is an equilibrium. It's an ecosystem that needs to be balanced. Reiner is a liberal, but it is very much a small-c conservative view of what politics is like. It reminds me of the British conservative Michael Oakeshott, his very famous idea that politics is like being captain of a ship, uh, where your job is to keep the the ship steady rather than take it to any particular destination. It's about tending to the existing arrangements, that's uh, Oakeshott's phrase, rather than, than making arrangements. So this movie really is the living embodiment of that dumb cliche that, you know, an eagle needs its left and right wing to fly. And yet towards
0: the end of the movie, there is a scene where Johnson's aides are hashing out the Civil Rights Act and they're saying, well, we can't put everything in it. We can't do the whole act. You'll never be reelected. It'll never pass. And then Johnson dramatically enters the room and says, well, what good is presidential power then? We're, we're doing the whole thing. You spend the whole movie being told that, well, you know, you've got to compromise. The word compromise is stated over and over and over again in this movie. But then suddenly, three quarters of the way in, you find out, actually, uh, we can't compromise. Everything you've seen was him masterfully playing the system, uh, but now he's going to pull the rug out from under it and do a sneak attack. And I'm not sure why the preceding three quarters of his scheme was necessary then.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this is in keeping with a basic contradiction that you especially saw at the DNC last week, but has really been a feature of, you know, how centrist liberals and democratic partisans think about politics and have thought about it since the early Obama era. One of the apparent contradictions of Obamaism is that it's most famous for these kind of soaring speeches. You know, it was that tendency in Obama that made people like Paul Krugman very skeptical about him in 2008. Krugman felt that Obama had this messianic element, which he was very, uh, very suspicious of. But politically speaking, Obama liberalism was, was all about, you know, trying to make bipartisan deals. It was all about sending Joe Biden over the Republican Senate office to offer them cuts to Social Security in exchange for, you know, God knows what. It was about trying to pass legislation that the Democrats had the votes to pass themselves, but they were so determined to get a stamp of bipartisanship on it. So there was this soaring kind of very moralist rhetoric to Obamaism, paired with this moral minimalism when it came to what they were actually trying to do. And so I think the film, even though, you know, I agree that because this is a film and it's telling a story, it's a pretty major contradiction in in the narrative. But I don't think it's actually a contradiction in real life. Or to put it a different way, I think one of the ways that liberals have tended to paper over how kind of minimal their, their actual commitments are, paper over how completely obsessed with process and rules and procedure and etiquette and all that stuff they are, is through this kind of soaring rhetoric that's about nothing in particular, so, you know, at the DNC last week, you know, you had this kind of soaring rhetoric, of, uh, you know, with nods to social justice. And then at the exact same time, you had, you know, John Kasich wheeled out to say, they say Joe's going to be a creature of the left, but don't worry, no one, no one pushes Joe around. You know, he's not actually going to do any of the stuff that's in the platform. Don't worry, folks. So the film very much like uh, the DNC in that way, which I, I haven't. Uh, but would you believe I don't check Rob Reiner's Twitter regularly, but I'm sure he gave it rave reviews.
0: Isn't it funny how much this movie positions the Civil Rights Act as being important as the flowering of Kennedy's legacy? It's a sort of tone-deaf way for a movie in the year 2016 to position the Civil Rights Act... But as to the film's liberal vision, it seems relevant to what you were saying about how this is ultimately a movie about the Obama era. This is a movie about an idealistic president who wasn't able to complete what everyone hoped he was going to.
1: But he had a loyal deputy from a a different political tradition (laughs) who who is going to be the unlikely herald of the next New Deal.
0: Right. Anyway, it's clear that Rob Reiner saw Steven Spielberg's Lincoln and said, hey, I want to do that. And I'm proud of him that he was able to do it.
2: Kennedy is a man of great ideas. Now the country needs a man who can deliver. There will be no compromise. This is about making President Kennedy's vision a reality.
0: So we were talking about John F. Kennedy, and, uh, you know, I was thinking about how sad it is that he's gone. But did you know there's actually a new Kennedy out there? And and he's in the House right now, and he's actually running for Senate. How cool is that?
1: <laughs> so by the time uh, this episode goes out, uh, it'll probably be just a few days until the Massachusetts Senate primary, where Joe Kennedy III is attempting to unseat Ed Markey. I finally did a deep dive into it this week. And I have to say, uh, learning more about Joe Kennedy III was intensely triggering for me as somebody who spent so much time, and who's had to spend so much time watching and listening to Justin Trudeau. Uh We were talking before about soaring speeches that mean absolutely nothing. Uh, I've always been astonished at how anybody can take... Justin Trudeau seriously. He is the virtuoso of saying things like, we are what we are and Canada is what it is because in our hearts we've always known that better is always possible. Uh, That's an actual Justin Trudeau quote. I watched the final debate between Kennedy and Ed Markey. Kennedy, who I mean, I'm assuming everybody who's listening to this knows what he looks like. If you haven't seen a picture of him, check it out. He looks like a sort of replicant version of of JFK. He's the he's the Kennedy Mark III.
0: The Kennedys' looks have always been overrated, in my opinion. <laughs>
1: Not to take us back to the LBJ movie, but uh, I thought it was funny that the guy they got to play, JFK, was was worse looking than actual JFK, and the guy they got to play, RFK, who's actually in more of the movie, was considerably better looking than RFK. <laughs> anyway, here was Joe Kennedy uh, with, in his last opportunity to address the people of Massachusetts ahead of this primary that uh, for about a year he has been an absolute lock to win. Uh, there was a rumor at one point that uh, Markey would actually commit seppuku and uh, resign to avoid embarrassment. So in his closing statement, he said, my family taught me that leadership isn't about power. It's about humanity. It's about the messy stuff, the hope and the hurt, the common currency we share in a world that gives and takes far too much, far too (laughs) often. So I love this kind of political rhetoric because it's designed for the person who's sitting at home and their brain is slightly turned off and they're kind of primed to be pro-Kennedy in the first place and it just kind of passes through them without any resistance you're twirling and, twirling, and,
0: twirling towards freedom right yeah,
1: yeah yeah as soon as you stop and think about it you get you're forced to ask what the hell is he saying here you know he might as well have just said my family and just left it at that cuz that is literally the only reason he's he's offered for why he's running you know, so leadership isn't about power; it's about humanity. So there's, you know, an opposition between one thing that's that's good, uh, humanity, and one thing that's bad, power. Uh, although, as we learned from Rob Reiner, you actually need both. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But then you get, uh, it's about the messy stuff. So now the messy stuff is being counterposed, it would seem, with power. The hope and the hurt, those things are kind of opposite. Is the messy Um, stuff
0: the dirty business of politics, like the rolling up your sleeves and getting out there? Or or, or is it something more every day? Is
1: it... I think it, I think what's great is it can be it could be what absolutely whatever you want it to be.
0: Is the messy stuff yeah. like you know if if somebody doesn't have health insurance or, or like they have to work three jobs like is that the messy stuff possibly?
1: Absolutely whatever you want it to be. I mean a hallmark of all centrist rhetoric is that it's kind of ideologically universalist. It can mean anything and everything you want it to. So you know fi- he finishes by saying you know that we have a common currency. Uh, in a world that gives and takes far too much far too often what exactly is being given and taken is not really clear here
0: we think too much and feel too little more than machinery (laughs) we need humanity more than cleverness (laughs) we need kindness
1: But so I didn't include it in the article, but, you know, a basic problem Kennedy's had throughout the race has been an inability to explain why exactly he was primarying from the right one of the co-sponsors of the Green New Deal. And I found this quote from February when he's talking to a voter. Uh, This is what he said. He said, with due respect to Senator Markey, who's a good man, there's more to this job than the way you vote and the bills you file. It comes with an ability to leverage that platform to address the issues we're talking about. And with due respect to the senator, if you're not going to leverage that now, given what is at stake for the Democratic Party for the values that we hold dear in our commonwealth, uh, that's the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, that have been targeted by this administration literally from day one, if you're not doing it now. Then when
0: this is the LBJ movie, this is, you know, LBJ (laughs) may not have had the best voting record, but ultimately he was able to leverage and, you know, create because because you don't want to be the guy who's on. One or the other side of lbj because they're ultimately useless he's the one who has to bring balance to the force
1: uh i think decrypting the enigma code was probably easier than figuring out what exactly the fuck kennedy meant by that but as luck would have it you know kennedy's proven a pretty bad campaigner uh the sense of entitlement of his campaign i think has been pretty visible it's pretty clear uh from this that he could have run for president in 2020 opted for a a run to the senate instead and then was probably going to run for president after that, basically just waving the family crest and doing little else. No Kennedy has actually ever lost an election in Massachusetts, so this seemed like a total gimme for the family to get a seat back in the, uh, in the Senate and then perhaps to go higher. Um, and the gamble did look like it was going to pay off until a, really a few weeks ago. Polls have shown Markey has orchestrated possibly one of the greatest political recoveries uh, of the election cycle, the latest poll I saw actually had him 12 points ahead. So unless something changes in the next few days or or the polls are wrong, it looks like he's probably going to win. He, like Bernie Sanders, has become a kind of unlikely tribune of uh, young people, despite Kennedy's whole brand being that, you know, it's time to uh, inject youthful vigor back into politics or, or something. Markey apparently leads among voters under 30, 71 to 21. <laughs> He's built a coalition that is in some ways uh, similar to the Sanders coalition and that involves the Sunrise Movement. Uh, He's been endorsed by AOC as well. Uh, It should be noted that he, you know, there really is only one Bernie Sanders. Markey does have some pretty bad votes uh, in his past, including a vote for the, uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. He's been endorsed by Chuck Schumer as well as AOC. But I think he nevertheless uh, should be reelected. And I think the fact that uh, Nancy Pelosi jumped in to endorse Kennedy last minute is a sign of just how much Democratic elites really hate and want to discipline the left of their party, particularly the voters on the left of their party. Because Markey is, by any reasonable definition, a member of the Democratic establishment, as is Joe Kennedy III. The fact that even that, even being a progressive Democrat who's a party loyalist in the mold of Markey is apparently not allowed, is pretty revealing about the state of things at the top of the Democratic Party. So even though Markey is no Bernie, uh, him being reelected and defeating Kennedy's challenge will be a punch in the nose to uh, some of the worst people in American politics and some of the worst tendencies in American politics.
0: Yeah, I actually had to get in there and give an endorsement to Kennedy as well uh, because of the way that Ed Markey disrespected the Kennedy legacy.
1: Um <laughs> Well, and also, you know, I hear his supporters are real bullies online. Did you did you see the do you see the meme that the Kennedy campaign sent in their like open letter to Marky that was an example of abuse? And it was like
0: Was it somebody quote tweeting him saying this ain't it, Chief, or something like that?
1: <laughs> it was like a really shittily rendered dinosaur, like a Microsoft Paint Dinosaur, and it was retweeted by an account that's just like the dinosaur saying fuck different things, and it just said fuck Joe Kennedy.
0: Yeah, I mean you're laughing, but those of us who have experienced abuse and harassment at the hands of the markey bros don't want to hear you erasing our experiences
1: yeah anyways if you're if you're listening in massachusetts please go and vote for ed markey uh
2: mr hager yes this is joe hager uh joe uh, uh is your father the one that uh, makes uh clothes yes sir we're all together uh you all made me some real lightweight slacks uh that uh, He just made up on his own, sent to me three or four months ago. It's a kind of a light brown and a light green, rather soft green and soft brown, and they're real lightweight. Now I need about six pairs for summer wear. I want a couple of, maybe three of the light brown, uh, kind of a almost powder color, like powder on a lady's face. Then there were some green. And then maybe some other light pair, if you had a blue in that or or black, I'd have one blue and one black. I need about six pairs uh, or wear around in the evening when I come in from work. Yeah. And I need uh, they're about a half an inch too tight in the waist. Now, you back by, wanted, I wanted to be here, get them right for you. No, I don't know. You, you all just guessed at them. I think son. but wouldn't you have the measurements there? We'll for you. I can send you a pair. I want them a half inch larger in the waist than they were before, except I want two or three inches of stuff left back in there so I can take them up. I vary 10 to 15 pounds a month. So uh, leave me at least two and a half 3 inches in the back where I can let them out or take them up and put make these a half inch bigger in the waist. Make the pockets at least an inch longer. Money, My money and my knife and everything fall out. Wait just a minute. hello hello now the pockets when you sit down in the chair the knife and your money comes out so i need it at least another inch in the pockets Nine. yeah now another thing the crotch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight so when you make them up give me a inch that i can let out there uh because they cut me It's just like riding a uh, wire fence. These are almost, these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. Right. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So, leave me, uh, you never do have much margin there. Let's see if you can't leave me about an inch from the where the zipper ends, uh, around uh, under my, back to my bunghole. All right, then. So I can let it out there if I need to. Now be sure you got the best zippers in them. These are good that I have, and uh, if you get those to me, I would sure be grateful. Uh, where would you like to be, in, please? White House. Uh, now, uh, I don't guess there's any chance of getting a very lightweight shirt, sports shirt, to go with that slack, is there? That same color. We don't make them, but we can have made up for you. If you might might look around, I wear about a seventeen. Extra, extra long. Do you like it in the same fabric? Uh, yeah, I sure would. I don't know whether that's too heavy for a shirt or not. I, think too heavy for I sure want I sure want the lightest I can in that same color of matching it. If you don't mind, you figure out somebody up there that makes good shirts and uh, get me one to match each one of them, and if they're good, we'll order some more. Uh, I just sure will appreciate this. I need it more than anything, and, uh, uh now, uh, that's, a. Uh, that's about it. I guess I could get a jacket made out of that if I wanted to, couldn't I? No, oh, I think that uh, Mr. James Hager have a jacket made. Yeah, he sent me some jackets for some earlier, but they were way too short. They hit me up about halfway down my belly. I had much longer waist. But I, I thought if they had material like that and somebody could make me a jacket, I'd send them a sample to copy from. Well, I'll tell you what, if you will send us this, we'll get it we'll find someone to make it. Okay. Okay, I'll do that. Now, how do I, you give this boy the address, because I'm running for a funeral, and give him address just how to dress these trousers, so we'll send them to you. And don't you, you get the measurements out of them, and add a half an inch to the back, give us an inch to the pockets, and about an uh, inch underneath, uh, so we can let them out. Now, would you like just a little more stride in the crotch? Yeah, that's right. Okay, sure. I want you to build these at least a half inch more, and then leave me some in there. okay
0: Okay, here he is is. i can't do it ironically
1: (laughs) Uh, you can do it ironically you just have to actually you have to be factual about it at the same time you're right but american listeners have no idea what the hell we're talking about
0: so the conservative party,
1: <laughs> it's like, you literally don't know. know how to, you're, you've been on Twitter speaking in your irony voice all day and you don't know how to like, just talk to be yourself. I, I,
0: I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> I, I promise I can do it. <laughs> <laughs>